brings back some old school renovation church memories. If you've been around for six or seven years, you know that was like an OG renovation church song. Why are you laughing, Matt? In tenderness, in tenderness. Oh, grace that brought me to the fold of God. What an awesome thing to celebrate and sing together. Good to sing it again. Well, we're done with our series on change. So no more change. That joke fell flat. (laughs) Just be the same. (laughs) No, obviously, uh, hope that series was an encouragement to you if you had the opportunity to journey with us through it. We hope that it would, in some ways, bring some perspective to uh, uh, sanctification, to change, to really where our life is headed, that one day we'll stand before Jesus face to face, and the, the Bible gives us a great hope that one day we will be like Him, and that series just hope to promote uh, in each of us a, a pursuit of that, pursuit of that righteousness, that holiness, again, dependent upon God the Holy Spirit, uh, immersed in the Word of God, connected to one another in the local church, in the midst of our trials and struggles and suffering. And this is a work that He is doing in us, amen? Yet, we still, empowered by the Spirit, cooperate with Him in this. And so while He is at work in us to will and to act according to His good pleasure, we as well work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So we do encourage you to continue to pursue the Lord, trust that He will continue to change you. But we are indeed back in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. So grab your Bibles, we're going to dive right in uh, today. The series is called Jesus, King of Heaven and Earth. And just by way of quick recap, we called it Jesus, King of Heaven and Earth because we want to put forward to you that which Matthew puts forward to us, Jesus, the King of heaven and earth. That's who Jesus is. That's what we believe. That's what we embrace. And really, uh, as we dive in, probably for the next three years in this gospel, we want you to come face to face with Jesus Christ. In the midst of all the details, in the, in the short passages, uh, we went through the Beatitudes one at a time. Don't miss Jesus. It's a, te- a, a series that's all about Jesus. And so, here we are in Matthew chapter 5. If you remember, we're in a particular section of Scripture that we left off in called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. This series, uh, a section of, of Matthew where Jesus, as we see in verse 1 of chapter 5, comes up on the mountain, he sits down, and he is teaching. The new Moses is teaching the people, his disciples, the new Moses who would lead his people out of their captivity in sin is now teaching and instructing. The content of his preaching, if you remember, his proclamation was the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus preached. That's what he proclaimed. That's what he taught, uh, the kingdom of God. And so we saw in the Beatitudes this instruction that were really characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of God. You look back, we're shocked. 
the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. These are really the the characteristics of those who are citizens in the kingdom of God. And some of those shock us. And at the same time, they bring us great awe. They cause us to worship the kind of people that live in the favor of God. Shocks us. Those who are blessed, those who live in God's favor, it shocks us. And at the same time, understanding God's infinite and profound grace, it amazes us. It moves us. And it draws us. We saw at the end of the year, the end of our time here, that Jeremy reminded us that, uh, well, taught us that that we are the, the church is the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And that we're to let this light shine. These characteristics are to shine so that everyone will see our good works and glorify God that is in heaven. And so we have this king that has come proclaiming a kingdom. All the descriptions. This new kingdom that is coming with this new king. And one begin to wonder, one may begin to wonder what of the old kingdom? What of the old laws, teachings? What is the relationship between Jesus, this kingdom, and the law, the prophets? Really, the whole Old Testament. It's that question that this text answers and raises in verse 17 of chapter 5. So I encourage you to follow along with me. What is the relationship between Jesus, this kingdom, and the citizens of this kingdom? These characteristics, how does it relate to the law, the prophets, really the whole Old Testament? Verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Some of you may have had the opportunity over the last couple months to go downstairs and see all the hard work uh, that, that went into remodeling uh, our multi-space, is what we're calling it. Ooh, the space downstairs, down the corridor, underneath the house next door becomes kind of like a multi-purpose room for us. And if, if you've been around at all, you remember... Uh, what it used to be, you went down there, you would have smelled some interesting things, going back to the 50s probably, 
You know what I mean by that old, stank church basement. Can you kind of smell it? If you've been around church at all, you know, at any point, you're probably going to have that smell. It's just kind of, it's that church smell, that old school Baptist church smell. You know, like, yeah, these are Baptists, right? You just know. A lot of potlucks over a long period of time, and we ain't never painting this room because Edna put this room in in 1953, and when she died, she left the money for this carpet. You get my point. Well, we decided it was time to make a change down there, and so we uh, raised the money, and if you remember, uh, one, of the, one of the big steps in the process of, of, of remodeling that room was something that we did in November 2018, if you remember. We had about 25 people show up here with sledgehammers, right? And we had a big dumpster out front right after service. We all just uh, had some OIP, original Italian pizza, and we went down there and we just destroyed that room, ripped everything out of it. All that was, was no longer. Because really, the first step in the process of having a new room down there was to completely and happily bring utter destruction to that room. That's what we did. In order to bring about something new, there had to be the removal, the destruction of something old. And Jesus comes proclaiming a new kingdom, right? All it, with, with the new uh, kingdom, one might assume that this means the destruction of the old, the complete removal and throwing away of the old teaching, the old covenant, the old testament, right? That basically the idea is that it's with this new teaching as he sits down on the mountainside and begins to instruct that maybe this was the eradication, the destroying, the abolishing of the old testament, of the law and the prophets. But Jesus makes this very clear, doesn't he, in verse 17? He says, No. No. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. That word abolish literally is to like tear down and destroy like buildings. That's why I use the illustration from the basement. It's literally the destruction of something that was built, tearing it down. He's saying, do not think for one minute. Don't give it a second thought. Matter of fact, don't even think about it at all in any way, shape, or form. I have not come to tear down, destroy, or abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. He says it twice, emphatic. You may think as I come with this new teaching that I'm destroying it, that I'm tearing it down, that I'm throwing it away. That is not what I'm doing. That is not why I came. It's very important that you understand the purpose for which I came into the world. It is not to abolish. It is not to destroy. It is not to tear down the law and the prophets. And we say the the law and the prophets, it really becomes a a phrase to mean the whole Old Testament revelation. The Old Testament, right? 39 books. Don't think for one minute that I've come to destroy that. 
and throw it out and get rid of it. It's not why I'm here. Don't think about it for a moment. Don't give it one thought. He says, I have what? Not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, what does that mean? What does fulfill mean? Jesus is saying, I am not an abolisher of the law and the prophets. I am the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. That's why I'm here. What does fulfill mean? Well, some people think that means to confirm it, to complete it, to do it. Jesus perfectly does the law. Do we agree with that statement? Yes. That is something that we emphatically, like exclamation point, Jesus comes to do it, to confirm it, to complete it fully, perfectly. Yes. Exclamation point. Others say that this means that Jesus fulfills it in the sense that there were predictions and promises and prophecies made concerning him, and he is that, that he is the fulfillment in the sense that there was a prediction that was given, and now he is the fulfillment of that. Do we agree with that? Yes. Promise, fulfillment. Yes. We agree with that. Jesus is all that the Old Testament foreshadowed, promised, predicted, prophesied. Jesus is that. Exclamation point. Yay! But there's more, I think, to understand in this definition. If you read all 57 people on this word, you're going to get subtle nuances in a number of different directions. This word fulfill. It's not that simple. Carson says we must be careful not to too narrowly define this word fulfill. And so, to be honest, I spent the week doing this. What does this mean? Fulfill. Pulling my hair out. And in some ways, uh, there's not a perfect, simple, like, oh, there it is. It's a multifaceted word that gets at a number of things. But I thought the most helpful way to define it was given by Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung says that we can understand the word fulfill with, by taking that Second part of the word, fill, fill. He says the best way to grasp all the fulfillment, all that fulfillment means is the thing, is to think of the word fill right in the middle of it. He's saying that Jesus fills up and fills out all of scripture. He's basically saying that this is what Jesus says when he says, I've come to fulfill it. He says, I have come to fill it up, to show you what it is all about, to do what it says, to live out what it predicts, to put into color what is black and white, to show you the substance where you have only been seeing the shadow. When Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill it, he's saying, I fill it up right to the brim. That which was empty. I fill it up. I fill it out. I am all that it predicts. I am all that it says. I do all that it does. I make it full. I fill it up. 
It's all about me. The Old Testament was a shadow. I am the substance. Right? You used to see in black and white. Now with me and how I interpret it, who I am, all that I do, I bring color to that which was black and white. I fill it up. So Christ is not the destroyer. He's not the remover. He's not the replacer of the law of the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus is the fulfiller of the law. That's what Christ does, and that's who Christ is. That's why he came. And so he goes on to say, For I tell you, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, into a whole new age after which I return. He says this, not an iota, not a dot. Simply put, not even the smallest stroke of the pen in the whole Old Testament. Not any of that. Not, this, not the dot of the I, not the cross of the T. Not just the move of the pen that makes a P a B. In English, you think of that, the difference between a, a P and a B. Not the smallest stroke of the pen that just distinguishes one letter from another. None of that will pass away until it is all accomplished. So Jesus does not negate the relevancy. He does not minimize the authority for his disciples of the Old Testament. The Old Testament. So the coming of Christ in his kingdom marks the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That is massive implications for us. Massive implication for us. And I think, in some ways, you think, well, how does this affect my life? It actually might not be affecting your life at all. As a matter of fact, it might feel so detached from you. But maybe that's what this text in this sermon does, is attach something that was detached. You follow me? Maybe we're thinking too irrespective to something that is still real, relevant, and abiding. Maybe we have a distorted understanding and we're missing something that's actually quite important and relevant. So what is the significance of this? Well, first of all, this tells us as his disciples that Jesus' teaching is inseparably connected to the teaching of the Old Testament. You can't separate them. can't separate them. It's inseparably connected. Christ's teaching is inseparably connected to the teaching of the Old Testament. Yes, I'm proclaiming a new kingdom. Yes, I am the new king. Kind of. I've always been king. I'm king. But that doesn't mean I'm getting rid of the old. No. I'm fulfilling it. I'm not destroying it. I'm fulfilling it. And it's inseparably connected to me. Which I really appreciated Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. He says, The moment you begin to question the authority of the Old Testament, you are of necessity, he says, questioning the authority of the Son of God himself. Because Jesus makes a connection. You question the authority of the Old Testament, you question the authority of Christ. So let's not disconnect that which is connected. And yet, the truth is, is that's the tendency and desire of people today. Culture even Christianity, and some in the church. A desire to separate the two. I'm not overly familiar with this, so I'd be 
somewhat should be careful of how I speak of it, but as I understand this, this movement called the red letter movement in our day. You may, you may know what this is, maybe you don't. It's basically a movement in Christianity that says, you know what, we're going to look at the red letters. And I don't have them in my Bible. They're all black. But you might. Do you know what the red letters are? What are the red letters in, in printed Bibles? Jesus' words. So this whole movement in Christianity is to say, you know what? We're going to go to the red letters first, foremost. That's going to be our guide. If it's not a red letter, it becomes almost subservient to the red letter. Like we're going to interpret everything else based on the red letters. Do you understand what's happening here? That we're saying, no, Jesus is more significant then what, what Jesus says, and what maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say Jesus said, is more important than what Paul says. Uh-oh. Paul says X, but Jesus says. As if to pit them against each other, and the trump card is the red letter. It's a picking and choosing. It's, a, it's saying this part of Scripture has more authority over this part of Scripture. And so while we're going to listen to the red letter in a particular way, we're not going to listen to the black letters. You follow me? You see the danger of what takes place? I'm here to tell you to beware of such ways of seeing Scripture, interpreting Scripture. Beware. Beware of these things. Beware of severing Christ from the totality of the Word. All of these words. Every iota and dot. Every one. Genesis to Revelation. Don't separate law and gospel too much. There's distinctions, but they're inseparably linked. The gospel enables us to obey the law. It doesn't destroy it. Right? The law points us to Christ, and then Christ enables us by the power of the Spirit to now live faithfully and to obey the law. There's harmony between law and gospel that we must see. We must embrace. We must be careful of any notion that there was a plan A that didn't work out. And so God came up with a plan B to save us. The law functions to reveal our sin and point us to Christ. And Christ then, by the power of the Spirit, enables us to walk in faithfulness in keeping the law. We must be aware of these things. So Christ's teaching is inseparably connected to the teaching of the Old Testament. Just write that down. Don't disconnect it. Second thing is that all Scripture has an abiding authority over our lives. Right? Not till heaven and earth pass away. Until it's all accomplished. Not one iota. Not one dot. All Scripture has an abiding authority over our lives. Not just certain sections. We're not going to take this section and skip that section. You say, well, where do you get the word skipping sections? Well, I get it from pastoral ministry. I'll never forget my early days in Wolcott. Uh, one of my first, uh, I don't know, meetings with the other churches in our denomination. And we're sitting around talking about the authority of all of the scriptures. These are all pastors, mind you, around a table. And um, 
we were discussing uh, some certain issues uh, in, in culture and the life of the church. And I said, well, in, in challenging some of their opinions, I said, well, what about this particular section of Romans, which clearly speaks to that issue? And another pastor looked at me and said, oh, we would just skip that. And in a 25-year-old way, I responded. I can't remember the look on my face, but I'm sure it wasn't one of acceptance. Culture would skip sections. Even the church would only go to those sections that affirm and comfort rather than challenge, rather than require, rather than transform. I think we need to be aware of that. This tells us that all scripture, all of it, every page, every book, every verse, all scripture has an abiding authority over our lives. I think this, though, that you can't miss, as he says, I didn't come to a uh, abolish the law and the prophets. And I, again, where I started here in the introduction of this message, I don't want you to miss what this series is all about. Okay? Because I think when you hear Jesus say, I didn't come to destroy it, I came to fulfill it. I think ultimately that brings us to the purpose of why he came, but it brings us to the nature of who he is. He's the fulfiller. He is what no one else is. He is able to do what no one else can do. Fulfill the law, fulfill the prophets, to fill it up. He is all that we need. Don't miss the glorious nature of Jesus. This is, as Lloyd-Jones says, this is a stupendous claim that he makes. Jesus is making a claim about who he is. So don't miss who Christ is in this passage. This should give you great hope. And confidence and joy in understanding who Jesus uniquely is. Don't miss him in this statement. People crave that, right? Come to, to spend time with Jesus, to be reminded of Jesus, to hear about Jesus. Here it is. This is about Jesus. He is what no one else is. He is doing what no one else is capable of doing. He is providing and bringing about that which no one else can provide or bring about. Jesus is uniquely the fulfiller of the Old Testament. I think that should give you confidence in his person. This gives us an ability to look at who he is and trust him. Trust his teaching. It may come at us and it might be uncomfortable. It may come at us and it may confront us. It may come at us and it might give us a little bit of the eebie-jeebies in our seat. Like this, this isn't making me feel good and cute inside. But knowing who he is and knowing what he's doing, we can trust Christ. Trust Jesus today. Don't place your faith, hope, and trust in yourself or anything else that this world puts out to you. If you want to know, what do I do with this statement from Jesus Here's fundamentally what you can do is just trust in his person. Believe in him. Embrace him. It's not your works. 
It's Christ. It is Christ that you can trust. No one else, nothing else. And so what we see is that the coming of Christ and his kingdom is marking the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Close connection to the law, the prophets. There's not a divide. There's not a disconnect. And yet, here's something that we grapple with a little bit is that He's, he's making a connection. He's saying to these people, follow me. So he's establishing a connection with these disciples. And he's maintaining and clarifying a connection with the old covenant. So for his disciples, and this is his word, what does that mean about us? How does the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, how do, we, how do we interact with that? Well, he goes on to tell us. He says, therefore, verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Bottom line, for Christ's disciples, there is not any room for relaxation in the least of the commandments. That as far as Jesus is concerned, that the disciples, uh, uh, they're law keepers. That's what Christ's disciples are. They're obedient law keepers. So he calls his followers to continue to keep and obey God's law. There's no relaxation there. Right? We're, we're law keepers. We're called to obey. And that's what I think you see here is that Christ is calling us to pursue and promote obedience to all of God's commands. Not one iota. Not one dot. Not the least of these. Propensity for us to be law quitters. And he's saying, no, that's not what I've come to do. That's, that's not what I've purchased for you, a lawlessness. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here to provide a lawlessness for you, but really still calling you to faithful obedience to who I am and what I require. And you're saying, but wait a minute, that sounds a lot like legalism. Right, Because isn't that really, you think about the, the spectrum of how we relate to the Old Testament and the law. It's usually like, well, that doesn't matter anymore. We throw it out. We, we destroy it. We ignore it. And we could be promoting in us some sort of lawlessness. But on the other hand, we can, we can dive into legalism. I think it would be important for us to just define what legalism is and isn't. So I think we might be confused about that. Obedience to God's commands is not legalism. It's not. Here's what legalism is. And actually, and I want you to hear this, Jesus is truly confronting the poison of legalism here. So he's not promoting it, neither am I. He's confronting it in the Pharisees and the scribes. And what did they teach? Salvation by works, according to the law. That's legalism. 
Legalism says God will save you, he'll accept you, if you do what he says. That's legalism. We reject salvation by works. All praise be to God. It is all of grace. It is all a gift. Right? By grace, through faith, that no one may boast. It is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one may boast. No one is saved according to or on the basis of their works. They are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we reject any and all forms of legalism that says that if you do all these things, God will save you. We reject that. Legalism is also adding our own man-made rules and traditions on top of what God has revealed. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes were guilty of doing. Adding man-made rules. We've been good at that in the church, haven't we? Making up stuff. Just making up rules. Is that Wegmans? (laughs) Again, the 24-year-old that I am. In my head a lot. Okay, I might be even younger sometimes. And all the new bag rule. You know, like you can't. I'm like, yeah, that's what we needed. Another rule to save society. And the lady's like. I'm like, maybe the bird should just stop eating bags. I bet you when they eat our new reusable bags, they'll live. Anyway, all these things going on in my head. Basically just me complaining that I have to carry my groceries out without a bag. (laughs) Rules. Rules don't save. But we make them up and act like they do. Right? And we make people feel guilty when they don't meet our expectations that we came up with. That's legalism. Making up rules that don't exist and requiring people to obey them, that's legalism. That's not what Jesus is doing here. When he calls people to faithful obedience to all that God has revealed in the scriptures, obedience and calling people to faithful obedience is not legalism. It's not legalism. And so Christ is calling us to pursue and promote obedience to all of God's command. And then verse 20, really, he reveals our deepest need. He goes on to reveal as he's confronting and, and really distancing himself now. He's, remember, he's created a connection with the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. He's got a connection with these disciples. And now he's disconnecting himself from very specific people here. You're going to see this over the next six weeks. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, you've heard from people that are wrong in their understanding and interpretation of this law that I'm fulfilling. Here, let, let, me, let me help you understand the true nature of what my law revealed about myself and my ways. He confronts the Pharisees. He says, I, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who are these Pharisees and scribes? Well, bottom line, I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible just just 
summarizes who these people are. They're the super-duper holy people. If you've, parents, if you've read that with your kids, you know they have a fabulous job of just breaking things down. Right? Of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes were the super-duper holy people. Right? These were the, the spiritual elite. They knew all the laws. They memorized the laws. They were law knowers. They were law keepers. They were the most respected people. In many ways today, they might be the pastors, the theologians, the, the seminary professors, the scholars, the academics, all the people that knew the law and taught people the law. The super-duper holy people. The people that had it all together. In other ways, uh, the people that hear this, when they hear Jesus say, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, all of the people there would say, well, they're more righteous than me. They're the Pharisees and the scribes. You're telling me i got to have a righteousness that exceeds? Whatever happened to all this blessed are the poor in spirit stuff? i got to have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes? This is overwhelming. This is too much. I'll never make it. I'll never be better than those guys. No way. What is Jesus getting at here? He's saying you must have more righteousness. It's a quantitative term. Yeah, you must have more. It's a qualitative term as well. You must be more than they are. And I think in some ways, that's a significant thing to say. That gets at the, what's going on here. It's, it's a wake-up call for all of us, for the disciples here and for us here. It's a wake-up call that a deeper righteousness than even the most visible righteousness uh, that they could see, a deeper righteousness was necessary for entrance to the kingdom. It must go below the surface, not just on the outside. Not just head knowledge and knowing what to say. It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be more than all the religion and the externalism that is so visible and obvious in in the lives of the Pharisees and the scribes. I can see past that, Jesus says. I can look into the depths of their soul. I can see the state of their heart. And you got to have more than them. He's saying that we need a new heart. That that true righteousness is something that is internal before it is external. It can't just look good on the outside. Like like, uh, um, uh, cups that are dirty on the inside. He goes on to say later. So he's saying this exceeding righteousness is one that's internal. It's internal. John Stott says, it is not so much, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may only have scored 230. You getting the point here? He says, no. Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper. Being a righteousness of the heart, the righteousness which is pleasing to God, is an inward righteousness of mind and motive. For the Lord looks on the heart. 
Jesus can see the heart of the Pharisee. We can't know someone's heart, but Jesus can. And the truth is, Jesus knows our heart. Jesus sees who we really are. Jesus knows our motives. He sees the intentions of our heart. One might say, well, yeah, of course, because when we trust in Jesus, he gives us righteousness. Amen? That's a true statement. He's the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? If you trust in Jesus, you are declared to be righteous in God's sight because Jesus' righteousness is literally given to you. It's imputed to you. You're no longer counted as sinful in the sight of God, but you are now counted as righteous because Jesus' righteousness is given to you. It's imputed. We should be really excited about that. That is the righteousness of justification. That when we trust in Jesus, we see who he is, we understand and, and, and come to embrace all that he has done for us in his death and resurrection, in perfectly keeping the law, in his active obedience in this life, that that righteousness is imputed to us. It is now considered to be ours. And we stand before God righteous and holy. Amen? That is the gospel. But that is not the whole gospel. And that is not really what Jesus is getting at here in verse 20. He's not talking about imputed righteousness. He's not talking about the gift of righteousness. He is talking about the righteousness of sanctification. Back to what we talked about in, in, in um, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In that beatitude, he's not talking about the righteousness of justification. He's talking about people who have a hunger and a thirst for just doing uh, uh, the will of God, for obeying him. He's saying you have to have an exceeding righteousness, one that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes, one that leads you uh, out of the overflow of a new heart to walk in obedience and faithfulness. That is the key here, and that's what Jesus, as the one who fulfills the Old Testament, is able to provide that which the Old Testament on its own was not able to do. An internal righteousness that flows out in our lives and in our actions. That's what this means. It's revealing our need for an exceeding righteousness, Christ, in the coming of his kingdom. But it's also reminding us and pointing us to the provision of that need. And that is the new heart that comes from the new covenant that Christ's blood has secured for us. Jeremiah 31, which we read in the confession uh, and in the assurance of pardon. Right As we confess our sins to him, we hear this incredible promise of what God is doing and has done in the hearts of real people like you and me. It may be doing even now as you hear the word preached that the Spirit of God may be awakening you from spiritual death and blindness and opening your eyes to see the glory of Christ and to see that there's no more hope in your works and all the sins that you've struggled with and every... every uh, uh, part of your fallen condition in this world, every uh, sin that you've committed 
it's all dealt with in Jesus Christ. And that the only way out, the only remedy is to trust in Him. We're back to that again. Trusting in Jesus. Crying out to Him. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And to Him to provide the heart. The real, deeper, internal remedy for our greatest issue. We're unrighteous. And all that comes from Christ. It all comes from Jesus. The internal work of God in the new covenant to bring about an external work of obedience and law keeping. So in relationship to the Old Testament, Jesus is not throwing out its relevancy. He's not negating or minimizing his authority. No, what he's doing is he is uh, providing and enabling the exceeding righteousness that the Old Testament could not, was unable to provide. That's what Christ is doing. And it makes sense, right, for him to do that because he's the fulfiller. He's the one that fills it up to the brim. He's the one. That's what this means. So I implore you to trust in Jesus Christ today. He is the source of your exceeding righteousness that is required for the, for the kingdom. Trust in Him to receive it. Trust in Him to live it. Hunger and thirst for it. And hear the promise that as you hunger and thirst for this righteousness, that you will be filled. You will be filled. And I implore you, as you have this new heart that is given to you by faith, by the application of the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of you, begin to pursue righteousness. Pursue it as an overflow of this new heart, this grace that has been worked in you. The coming of Christ in His kingdom, it marks fulfillment. Fulfillment of the Old Testament. And it marks the revelation and provision of the exceeding righteousness that is required for entrance into his kingdom. Friends, that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Stick with us. It's kind of an introduction to the next six weeks. As you'll hear more about how Jesus is applying this idea of who he is as fulfiller to six specific, specific um, uh, ways in terms of anger and lust and marriage and divorce and oaths and retaliation. All of that is really going to come uh, as an outflow of this, who Christ is and how he is transforming and filling up our understanding of the law. Amen? Guys, let's pray. Father, we praise you for this word. We pray your spirit would apply it to our hearts. We pray that you would awaken within us a faith in Jesus to see all that he is and all that he's done. We praise you that he came into this world to fulfill 
all the promises to perfectly do all the commands and the laws to be our righteousness and yes, to give us a new heart that would empower and enable and motivate us to pursue faithful obedience to you. I pray that if there's anybody here today that does not know Christ, you would draw them to him. Your spirit would be active in their hearts. If there's anybody here today that has, that has uh, ignored certain parts of Scripture, considered your word to be only partially true, I pray that you would change their mind and, and show them the truth and, and draw them to yourself and give us all a growing commitment to bow our knees in total submission to the fullness of all that you have revealed in the Bible. Sanctify us in the truth, O Lord. It is your word that is truth, we pray. God, as we continue to sing and pray, may our words continue to be glorifying unto you. Minister to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.